the Martin Luther King Jr. lectureship was established in 1998 as an opportunity for the seminary to, I quote, embrace the noble heritage of Martin Luther King Jr., a theologian, minister, and ethicist par excellence of the 20th century who had a worldwide impact. A theologian, minister, and ethicist of par excellence of the 20th century. Professor Taylor, I could almost hear Peter Paris's words right there. As a collaboration between the Office of the President and the Association of Black Seminarians, the inaugural lecturer was given by Dr. James H. Cohn of Union Theological Seminary in the spring of 1999. And since that time, no less towering figures have graced us with their thoughts and insights. The list includes M. Sean Copeland, Teresa Fry Brown, Eddie S. Glaude, and the Reverend Otis Moss III. And it's with great honor and privilege that we gather this evening to welcome another voice of grace and gravitas. Dr. Lerone A. Martin, esteemed scholar, Princeton Seminary alum, and current Centennial Chair and Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. Dr. Lerone Martin is a renowned authority in American religious history. He's a renowned authority with an impressive list of accomplishments and contributions. His first book, Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph and the Shaping of Modern African-American Religion, is an important historical work that traverses the subfields of American religious history, religion, race, and ethnicity, and religion, media, and culture. Having won the first book prize from the American Society of Church History, Preaching on Wax locates the phonograph as the antecedent to contemporary religious broadcasting. Martin demonstrates persuasively that alongside the radio, the phonograph played a distinct yet powerful role in contextualizing and decontextualizing, commodifying and commercializing forms of Protestant practice in America. And in his latest book, The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism, published this year with Princeton University Press, Dr. Martin delves into a thought-provoking exploration of the complex relationship between American religious leaders and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Drawing on meticulous research and insightful analysis, he uncovers the intricate dynamics of how the FBI, under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover, surveilled, targeted, and sought to undermine the efforts of African-American religious leaders and their communities in the fight for civil rights and social justice. Yet beyond viewing J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau as merely hostile to religious leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., 
Professor Martin paints a picture of an intentional Christian vision of the, of the FBI under Hoover's leadership. More conservative evangelists became Hoover's disciples and, their, and his deacons. And by doing so, these figures helped to shape Hoover's Cold War vision of an ideological apparatus of jingoistic American Christians. And so it's with his deep understanding of American religious history and his unwavering commitment to unearthing uncomfortable truths that Dr. Martin's latest book is a compelling and timely contribution to the field and to thus our understanding of the state's influence on religious life in America. Today, we are so honored to have Dr. Lerone A. Martin coming home to Princeton, coming home with his spouse and partner, Rochelle Reese Martin. And he comes here to bring his insights and his expertise with to share with us during this annual Martin Luther King Jr. lecture. He is a distinguished scholar, he is an author, he is an intellectual, and his work continues to shape and illuminate our understanding of American religious history and its intersections with social justice. And that's why I am so honored and elated to have him in the building tonight. Please, my friends, show your love for Dr. Lerone Martin. I want to thank President Walton for that wonderful introduction and I'm really excited to be here for personal reasons. It's always a pleasure that when you leave home, someone actually invites you back. <laughs> it must mean that they miss you. And so it's with the honor that I'm back here at Princeton Seminary for the first time in a very long time, a place that's really dear to me, um, <clears throat> where I had my great deal of my spiritual formation and intellectual formation, both in the classroom with wonderful faculty who I see here tonight, but also classmates. Um, I have the privilege and honor to be roommates with Reverend Toure Marshall, learned so much from him. He was uh, a year older than me. We learned a great deal, great conversations with one another, wrote an open letter to a professor together. <laughs> you remember that? About the importance of power in the pulpit. I learned a great deal about crafting my public voice from Toure, and it was just so wonderful to see him here tonight. So it's good to be home. And I'm also feel a great sense of responsibility, not just for the wonderful introduction I received, but also because of the recent loss of a dear civil rights worker and a wonderful, 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 wonderful person who was with Martin Luther King Jr. Harry Belafonte, who we lost 
And in my role at learning at the MLK Institute, learned so much about the role that he played in King's life. And so I feel flattered to be here, honored to be here. And I hope that now that he is with the great cloud of witnesses that he will bear witness to this and hopefully it will bring a smile to his face that I will do this movement and his friend Martin King justice and what I have to say tonight. So with that, um, I'd like to start really speaking to the students today a bit about the MLK Institute and King's theology, but we'll spend most of my time focusing on the opposition to King's ministry. In a time where we have a holiday after King, we have a monument on the National Mall, the only non-president to have a monument on the National Mall, it's easy for us to perhaps think that King has always been loved and adored and honored by this country. But I would like to take the time today to talk a bit about the opposition that he faced. So first I wanna start a little bit about where I'm coming from. The MLK Institute at Stanford University, which I am now the second director there, was started in 1986. This is a picture of Coretta Scott King who visited in 1986. It was during a time when Coretta was, America was about to uh, start celebrating the MLK holiday and Coretta was concerned about people knowing about her husband. And she wanted America not to just read about her husband, but she wanted people to actually read her husband, to read his works and his ideas. And she asked Vincent Harding, one of King's collaborators who helped write the speech against the war against Vietnam about who should be the speaker, who should dedicate, who should lead the papers project. And Vincent Harding recommended Claiborne Carson, who was a historian at Stanford at the time, to lead the project. And so that's how the King Papers Project was brought to life. And for those who may not know, okay. <laughs> Professor Olson. <laughs> Professor Olson, please see me after class. My wonderful Old Testament professor, it's so good to see you. <laughs> the King Papers Project has produced uh, seven volumes of King's Papers, trying to help America understand this amazing citizen and minister. The first volume was published in 1992 and it covered the early part of King's life from the time of his birth up until the time he departed Boston uh, University with his PhD. And this volume is available on Amazon, wherever books are sold, your library, and also a great deal of what I'm gonna show you tonight is available on our website. But part of understanding King and reintroducing King in this moment involves a number of things. And first and foremost is to 
recognized that he was not always fully formed in a shirt and tie. The king actually arrived like this. This is a picture of one-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. in 1930, born in Atlanta, Georgia. An early photo here of the entire family. This is Martin King on the end, his sister, Christine Ferris in the middle, his younger brother, A.D., his father in the center, Reverend Martin King Sr., his mother, and also his grandmother, who he called Mama. He was very close to his grandmother. And a funny story about King at this stage of his life, he was very competitive with his young sister, older sister, excuse me. So competitive that when it came time for them to go to school, she was six and Martin was four. He begged his mother to let him go to school. He had to keep up with Christine. And because Martin had such a fascinating memory and his ability to recall things and read at an early age, she let him go. And so Martin and Christine both started first grade at the same time, though she was six and he was four. And things went well for the first semester. And then when his birthday came in January, he went to school bragging to all his friends about the big five birthday candles on his birthday cake. And the teacher heard him. And so the man who would become Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was expelled from school. At age six, he was finally allowed to go back. And you see in this photo, the school photo here with a great smile on his face. Young Martin went to school in first grade and completed his education at a very fast pace. In volume four, we chronicled King and his evolving ministry after the Montgomery bus boycott, when he became a symbol in America, a symbol of a movement. And what is often not realized from those who are not scholars of King is that how much this weight weighed on him. And he offered this prayer in 1957 Help me, O oh God, to see that I am just a symbol of a movement. O oh God, help me to see that where I stand today, I stand because others helped me to stand there, because of the forces of history projected me there. And this moment would have come in history even if MLK had never been born. So he understood his role as an, in the movement, as a spokesperson, as a thinker, as an intellectual, as a servant. But he also recognized he was just that, a servant. This volume also has the results of some of that iconic status, including in 1958, while signing books in Harlem, he was stabbed. You can see there the pen sticking out of his chest from the time that he was stabbed, excuse me, a letter opener. And Martin often used that moment where the doctor told him that had he sneezed, it would have severed his aorta, and he would have passed away, and he would have died. And that was part of the refrain he used in his last sermon, if I had sneezed. Also in this volume, excuse me, the next volume, what we discovered in volume six, we decided to move out of order. In volume six, we decided to cover all of King's sermons from this first year in seminary until 1963. This volume was discovered primarily because my colleague who's been at the Institute for over 20 years, who leads the King Papers Project, Tanisha Armstrong, was invited to Coretta and Martin's home 
invited into a bedroom where they found a box. And in this box were all of King's early sermons. So we've published this volume and it's one of my favorite volumes precisely because you get the chance to see Martin Luther King Jr. as a pastor. We often think of him as this movement leader. We often think of him as a great spokesman, which he was of speaking to national issues. But first and foremost, he was a pastor and he spoke to people's everyday needs in times of loss, in times of joy, in times of pain, and you get a chance to see how Martin Luther King Jr. did that. Finally, we're working on volume eight right now, which will chronicle the end of 1962 to 1963, will be volume eight. One of the documents in there that is forthcoming is this Martin Luther King Jr.'s actual uh, bulletin from the March on Washington in 1963. And that note at the top there is from Clarence Jones, who was King's attorney. And that note says, Dear Martin, just learned that Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois died in Ghana last night. Someone should make note of this. So this will publish this document, which was with King at the March on Washington. The textual material I shared with you is available on our website. Um, I shared it with Eric earlier today. Um, where you might find things of King's sermons and other documents I've shared with you today. But I want to get to a bit of King's calling now and a bit of how he understood himself and his role and his ministry. This is a picture of Martin as he applied to go to seminary, a place where many of our students can call very well. And this is a copy of part of his application to seminary. And the point that I want to focus on in 1957 is the question was asked, given your give your personal reasons for the decision to study in the gospel ministry. And King wrote, my call to the ministry was quite different from most explanations I've heard. This decision came about in the summer of 1944 when I felt an inescapable urge to serve society. In short, I felt a sense of responsibility which I could not escape. And in that summer, King, it's a project I'm working on now, he spent that summer in Connecticut, picking tobacco at a, at a tobacco farm. And it was that summer that King, for the first time, had ever lived outside of the segregated South. He wrote Letters Home, which we have at the Institute, which you can find online, about what it was like to be outside of Jim Crow segregation. He talked about seeing things that he said he never thought he would see, like being able to sit on any seat on the train once he got past Washington, DC. Being able to go to any restaurant he wanted to go to for the first time. But also the second time he went to Connecticut, also being stopped by the police and having an encounter with the police. And so, his call to the ministry was shaped in many ways by recognizing who he was and his experiences outside the segregated South and also trying to understand what America could be. And so when King arrived at seminary, he wrote a paper where he said these words. On the one hand, I must attempt to change the souls of individuals so that their society may be changed. 
On the other, I must attempt to change the society so that individual souls will have a chance. Therefore, I must be concerned about unemployment, slums, and economic insecurity. So King saw himself as an advocate, Professor Carter, of the social gospel in this sense. <laughs> but not just in the sense of we're fixing society only, but also about the importance of individual souls. And for too long, we've allowed, in my estimation, for one branch of Christianity, particularly white evangelicalism, to be the only branch that says it cares about saving souls. But that is not the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. You get a chance to see him as a pastor and see his concern for changing individual souls. And so as King arrived at seminary and, and was going through classes, he learned about how the things his mother taught him about the somebodiness. He learned a fancy word for that in seminary about the perspective of personalism. He learned about the beauty of his upbringing in his Baptist church, but also learned about different ways of articulating it and some of its shortcomings. And so through his theological education, King was affirmed in what he learned and learned so much more and gained new language. And by the time he left seminary, he was clear that there were three triple evils or the evil triplets. And this is important for us to remember about Martin King. We often know, of course, King understood racism as being a problem in America. Racism not as a personal preference, but racism as a structure. Racism that puts certain beings above others. And so for King, this was a sin, precisely because King believed in the Imago Dei, that every human being was made in the image of God. And so for Martin Luther King Jr., racism was sinful because it destroyed within those who were oppressed the image of God. It made them, gave them a false sense of inferiority, that somehow they were not made in the image of God. But here's the point that King also made that people often forget, is that even the racist loses, is affected by racism, because the racist gains a false sense of superiority, that somehow that they are better than other children of God. And so for King, this was a sin. This was morally wrong. Whether they were rules, they were laws, it didn't matter. Racism was a sin. We know that about Martin Luther King Jr. But what we forget is that he saw it deeply connected with poverty. We cannot claim the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. or his minister without wrestling with the fact of the connections between racism and poverty in this country. King believed that if you set aside a particular race, a group of people, simply because of the color of their skin, deny them of certain opportunities, that you are damning that group of people to poverty. And so poverty was deeply connected to racism in this country. And finally, of course, we know the part of Martin King's ideas that often get forgotten is that his concerns about militarism his concerns about war, and how he saw these three things connected. That any group of people that have been marginalized because of the color of their skin often would have to be kept there by military force, whether that was state-sanctioned violence or individual violence. And so King saw these three things as being intricately connected. And there's no way that we can talk about Martin King's legacy without wrestling with these three things. 
Often we see King is often used as a mascot for color blindness. But you cannot truly honor King without lifting up these triple evils. The, evil, the triple evils that he talked about in his love letters with Coretta when they were dating in Boston. He talked about in countless newspaper articles. We are now just discovering that this idea that there is somehow a nice king and then a radical king is just incorrect. He was always concerned about these three things throughout his life. And so the radical king is simply just Martin Luther King Jr. Now for King, how do we fight these things? King, he had a process. We often see these civil rights videos and they're powerful. We think that people just showed up at certain places, but we recognize that that's not true, that there was a process. And King believed that the process was important to having these protests, that people just didn't show up and things just didn't happen. So for King, there were several steps that were important. The first was the collection of facts. When you show up at a particular place and you believe that injustice is being done, you collect facts about this injustice. What's happening? Who's being oppressed and how? The second is to educate the community and educate oneself about these injustices and how important it is to understand exactly what's happening. And then we don't simply quickly jump to protest. We actually attempt to try to negotiate in good faith. We try to negotiate with those in power to make sure that the, these systems and these setup, the way that everything is set up and people are being discriminated against, can actually be changed. If those in power do not agree, then we go through a process of self-purification. This is important. Most of us understand that King's commitment to nonviolence was more than just a tactic, that it was a lifestyle. And this is a lifestyle for most of us that it simply does not come easy. Most of us were born, even as a child, that if someone hits you, you hit them back. But King understood that this was not natural for human beings to do this, and so he believed that individuals needed to go through a period of purification to check one's motives of why one was engaged in a protest and to make sure that one would be committed to nonviolence. Civil rights activists went through workshops. They went through dress rehearsals. They didn't just show up where things happened. They went through dress rehearsals and practiced this idea of nonviolence. King became such an ambassador of this. I recently learned in going through the volume we're going to publish about a moment that I never knew about in King's life when he was in Birmingham in 1963 giving an address at the SCLC meeting. And a man who was committed to the American Nazi party ran on stage and began swinging and hitting Martin King. And while all of King's lieutenants and those who were there at the SCLC meeting ran on stage and they had all said, according to everyone who was there present, they were ready to kill the man. And Martin Luther King Jr., all five foot six of him, stood in front of his friends and the Nazi who had attacked him and stopped them and said, please don't hurt this man. The man who had just punched Martin Luther King Jr. Please don't hurt this man. Can't you see he's disturbed? And King sat there on stage, stopping his sermon, stopping his address to talk to the individual about why he had attacked him and why he had punched him. That takes something deep within us that has to be cultivated. This is not something that came natural. 
Next then, after the self-purification, King believed you go into direct action. That's when you engage in a nonviolent campaign. That's when you engage in the nonviolent action. It's not passive. This is important. King was not about sitting around and doing anything. He believed in nonviolent direct action. And finally, of course, the goal is reconciliation. That we might be reconciled both to those who are our oppressors and our oppressors to us and reconcile the situation. Now the goal, of course, in these campaigns, the how do we get to that reconciliation? Create tension, create a crisis. That's the point of a nonviolent protest. I recall watching and talking and discussing with my dad, who was a veteran, about some of the Colin Kaepernick protest. And Colin Kaepernick was kneeling several years ago. And all the reports were that no matter what you felt about Colin Kaepernick's protest, it simply wasn't the right time. That Sunday football, America's second religion, was not the right time to protest. And I'll share with you what I shared with my dad and that that's the point. The point is to create a crisis or a tension. As King said, he's never engaged in a nonviolent campaign that seemed timed correctly according to those who were the oppressors. And so the whole point that Martin King tried to do was engage in campaigns that would create a crisis or a tension so that America could not escape the issues that were King and others were trying to bring to the fore. And by doing that, you dramatize the issue. You dramatize what's happening. You dramatize police brutality. You dramatize discrimination. You dramatize Jim Crow. You're not provoking violence. You're only revealing the violence that is being done every day. And of course, King always hoped to change the oppressor. This is one of the more controversial things, especially in today in our anti-racist moment we live in, concerns about changing the oppressor. King believed in that. He believed it was important to try to change the hearts and minds and the society we lived in. And of course, King also believed that these nonviolent campaigns changed the oppressed. It changed the way that folks thought about themselves and their ability to change their circumstances and their situations. This was the process that King used to go through American society and his ministry. It's what he did in Montgomery from 55 and 56 with the bus boycott. He did it again in Albany, Georgia in the 60s. Birmingham, Alabama, which we just celebrated the 60th anniversary of the Birmingham campaign and the Children's March and the letter from Birmingham jail. He did it in St. Augustine, Florida, trying to integrate St. Augustine, Florida in 64. It helped bring about the 1964 Civil Rights Bill, which most of you know. The 1965 Voting Rights Act, which in many ways has been gutted recently by our Supreme Court. But this is the process that King did throughout his campaigns. And as a result of this, King had a great deal of opposition. And we have to remember that it's difficult, given that how much we celebrate him now, but King had a great deal of opposition. And I'll spend the rest of my time on that. King was opposed first and foremost by the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation in this country, and a campaign that went beyond anything we've ever seen in life that we know about, the federal government attacking him. King also faced a great deal of opposition from clergy. 
and finally the American public. First and foremost, the FBI. The FBI's campaign against Martin Luther King Jr. had three different stages. The first in 1962, the FBI believed that Martin Luther King Jr. was in league with communists because of his Jewish attorney who worked with him and helped edit some of his books, Stanley Levinson, who had been involved with the Communist Party in the past, and also because of Jack O'Dell, who was working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So from 1962 to 1963, the FBI believed that King was a communist. In 1963 to 1965, they focused primarily on his personal life, recognizing they couldn't get the evidence about the communists and communism, that King was not a communist, they switched to trying to discredit him in his personal life. And finally, in 65 to 68, they tried to focus primarily on his political campaigns and his campaigns for nonviolence. Now, first, the FBI and their campaign against King. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, pictured here, believed that America was a Christian nation. He was a committed Presbyterian and a Presbyterian elder at the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, DC. He was involved in a number of church, church committees in the national church. He wrote a great deal for Christian publications, including for the American Sunday School, Catholic organizations and Catholic publications, as well as Christianity Today. He believed that America was a Christian nation it was a Christian nation that was established by God, and that America's society and America's social systems were established by God and should be left intact. And that if African Americans wanted a greater piece of the pie to be considered full citizens, they needed to work towards it and show themselves worthy. Even though we know that other citizens who come, to, other people who come to this country or born in this country are given those rights at birth, Hoover believed that African-Americans needed to show themselves worthy. And so because of this, Hoover's campaign against King was marked in many ways as a Christian crusade against King. The person who led that crusade primarily was the head of FBI domestic intelligence by the name of William C. Sullivan, who was a committed Catholic. And he, like Hoover, believed America was a Christian nation and believed that Martin Luther King Jr. needed to be stopped. So I draw your attention to a couple important FBI documents. First is this document here written two days after King's I Have a Dream speech, when the FBI had determined that communists had not indeed infiltrated the civil rights movement. But J. Edgar Hoover didn't believe that. And he wrote back on the 29th saying that it is impossible. King has to be a communist. And so William Sullivan, who I just showed you, wrote back there where I have the arrows, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s influence over other Negro leaders. Personally, I believe in light of King's powerful speech yesterday, meaning the March on Washington. He stands head and shoulders over all other Negro leaders put together when it comes to influencing great masses of Negroes. We must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this country, in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro and national security. When the FBI understood that they couldn't get hard evidence to do this, they decided to go another way. You see at the top of the page there, the, 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 uh, William Sullivan is saying, cannot get evidence that will stand up in testimony in court or before congressional committees 
um, that the Communist Party USA does wield substantial influence over Negroes, which one day could become de decisive. There at the bottom, you see, as the memorandum pointed out, this nation is involved in a form of racial revolution, and the time has never been so right for the exploitation of Negroes by communist propaganda. So the FBI stayed with this, even though they knew they did not have the evidence to back it up. And so the FBI concludes, William Sullivan concludes in the most, one of the most famous unfortunate lines there at the bottom, as previously stated, we are in complete agreement with the FBI director that communist influence is being exerted on Martin Luther King Jr. and that King is the strongest of the Negro leaders. As we have stated before in a memorandum, we regard Martin Luther King to be the most dangerous and effective Negro leader in the country. And so the FBI from this perspective decided to take on Martin Luther King Jr. and not by using evidence that would stand up in court or congressional committees, but simply by trying to discredit him and engage his personal life and go after him and terrorize him using taxpayer dollars. Here is a letter the FBI sent to him in an anonymous fashion. The FBI wrote to him shortly after being named the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, a prize that J. Edgar Hoover desperately wanted and believed he deserved. And in the letter they wrote as if from an African-American Christian, they wrote to King, they sent to his house, which Coretta opened up the letter. I'll read part. King, I will not dignify your name with either a mister or a reverend or a doctor. You are no clergyman. You could not believe in God and act as you do. The church organizations that have been helping, helping you, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, will know you for what you are, an evil, abnormal beast pretending to be a minister of the gospel. Satan could do no more. The letter continues. King, there's only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days to do it. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. Now, the FBI chose that because it was 34 days before King was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. And it was also because what's so pernicious about this is not just that it's the federal government using taxpayer dollars to go after a citizen who is not breaking the law. But it's also because shortly before this, King had been named Time Magazine Man of the Year. So this threat to King about suicide is pernicious because in that article in Time Magazine, King had revealed to the Time Magazine reporter that when his grandmother had passed away, it was the first time he'd ever lost someone close to him, that he was so distraught that he engaged in self-harm that he climbed to the top of his house, opened up the second floor window, climbed on the roof and jumped off when he was a young man. So the Time Magazine article had revealed that. So this, article, this, this letter here, this threat for King to presumably commit to die by suicide is pernicious because the FBI in many ways is playing on that and is banking on that. And so the FBI continued its campaign also not just by sending letters, but also by trying to get ministers involved. As I mentioned earlier, with J. Edgar Hoover being a Presbyterian, he wrote a great deal of articles for Christianity Today. Part of how I discovered this partnership was through a lawsuit. When Billy Graham passed away, I was working on this book on the FBI, and, and I understood that Billy Graham's rights to textual materials through the Freedom of Information Act had expired with his death. 
And so I filed a Freedom of Information Act uh, request for Billy Graham. The law stipulates that the FBI, the Department of Justice, has to respond within 20 working days. Billy Graham died on February 18th, and so I immediately uh, sent in my request. I never heard back. And two months later, in April, I heard back from the FBI. They did not give a determination. They simply said, we don't know if we have anything. If we do, we'll let you know. So, of course, I let it go. You know, as my father would say, it's the federal government, right? I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> What are you going to do with the federal government? Thankfully, I happened to meet an attorney by the name of Tuwan Samahan, who teaches at Villanova Law School. We met, started talking about what we're doing. And I said, well, I'm writing this book. I'm trying to figure out I'm doing this Freedom of Information Act. I requested something on Billy Graham and never received anything. And like a good lawyer, he said to me, you should totally sue. And I said, well, you know, I don't know about suing the federal government. You know, I don't know, I don't know about that. And he said, you know, I'll take your case. I'll do it, I'll do it for free. Um, all you have to do is pay the court filing fee. I, was a, hadn't, I did not have tenure at the time, I don't believe. And so I went to my chair, my department, and asked for $500 so I could file a lawsuit against the FBI. Thankfully, my wonderful chair, Dr. Marie Griffith, an outstanding scholar, um, trusted me. Was, thought I was wild, but trusted me. The university supplied me with the money, and so I had a lawsuit against the FBI for the, for the file of Billy Graham. And I never received what I wanted to receive, but the court ruled the FBI had, had to send to me a rolling, uh, rolling um, um, releases of, of things related to Billy Graham. They sent me a number of things, including Billy, uh, Billy Graham's whereabouts. The FBI was terribly concerned about where he was going. So they had lots of newspaper clippings, investigations of death threats, but nothing else. Things, other things they told me had, had been lost or destroyed. And I knew there was something more because I found this picture in the National Archives. And so I knew that Billy Graham and J. Edgar Hoover had some involvement. J. Edgar Hoover didn't let anybody in his office and never took photos with anyone without having a thorough background check on that individual. But I never received anything. So I started making Freedom of Information Act requests around the world of Billy Graham, Christianity Today, Campus Crusade for Christ, Youth for Christ, so forth and so on, the National Association of Evangelicals. And what I discovered there was that, of course, the great relationship between J. Edgar Hoover and Billy Graham and Christianity Today. And so as Hoover was writing for Christianity Today and sending out these essays to the public with the stamp of the FBI on these essays, reprinted from Christianity Today, America began to get the notion that perhaps white evangelicalism as represented through Christianity Today was indeed the religion that was going to keep the nation safe. And also Billy Graham and his broadcast, The Hour of Decision, his newspaper, his magazine, Decision Magazine, began quoting FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, as did countless evangelical ministers across the country, began quoting him in their sermons. And so Hoover waged a campaign within America's religious communities about what kind of faith was going to keep America safe during the Cold War and what kind of faith was committed to American democracy. And that faith did not involve questioning American social systems and social hierarchies. And it certainly did not involve protesting as Martin Luther King Jr. did. But having a white evangelical backup Hoover was not good enough. Hoover wanted to be able to authenticate his faith through also having an African-American. 
And so he recruited this gentleman here by the name of Reverend Elder Lightfoot Solomon Mashal, who was involved and was very close with the FBI because of his viewpoint at the time. Mashal was the first minister, black or white, to have his own television show beginning in 1947 in Washington, D.C. On CBS radio in, in 1930 from Washington, D.C., he broadcast across the country and even across to the BBC. He was an extremely popular minister of the day. He was also a minister who believed that African-Americans were wrong to protest for their civil rights, that African-Americans needed to work to show themselves worthy. And as you would imagine, that gospel message that he preached was something that J. Edgar Hoover liked a great deal. So the FBI recruited him using this gentleman here, Special Agent Louis B. Nichols, who was a Methodist who formerly worked at the YMCA for the Religious Works section of the YMCA, worked with him and worked together to recruit Elder Michal to help them in their campaign against Martin Luther King Jr. And he did it in a number of ways. After King's speech of the March on Washington, they reached out to him. The FBI had a conference and decided the one thing they needed to do was to get ministers to come up against Martin Luther King Jr. So they had Reverend Michelle go on the radio and preach this sermon a month after the March on Washington in 1963, and then Michelle had it transcribed and sent to President Kennedy. And the sermon, he, he ridicules Martin Luther King Jr. and, and uses the story of the, of, of the Lord's Prayer in Luke to say that King's dream is off. That the only way that America was ever going to get to have justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream and for the sons of former slaves and slave owners to sit down together at the table of brotherhood was going to be when God's will was done in heaven before what happened here on earth. And so on the sermon, he advised the best thing for African-Americans to do was to seek individual salvation and eventually hope that racial discrimination would end. And he had this sermon transcribed and sent to the Kennedy White House, reminding the Kennedy White House that while King was famous, then most Americans agreed with him and because of his popular radio show and television show that he had the right to know and he would know what America really believed. The second thing that he did was he also wrote an open letter to Martin Luther King Jr. admonishing Martin Luther King Jr. to stop criticizing the FBI. King had stated at one point in time in 1962 that he was concerned at how the FBI could find parts of a plane that had blown up all across a mountain and solve who had blown up the plane, but couldn't solve how African-American churches were being bombed. And King also criticized the FBI agents for agreeing with the mores of segregation. As a result of that, King and Hoover had a public dispute. And once again, the FBI turned to Reverend Michal, who wrote an open letter telling King that he had investigated the FBI, and that King was wrong, and that he owed J. Edgar Hoover an apology. In actuality, Michal did not do an investigation. He did not do anything but simply go to the FBI. They handed him this letter. He signed it and forwarded it to the press, spelling errors and all. Finally, what Hoover did, uh, what, what uh, Michal did, is he started preaching sermons as well against Martin Luther King Jr., telling everyone that King was being influenced by communists, laundering FBI information and counterintelligence. And this is a letter that I found in the FBI file that Hoover sent to him, congratulating him on the sermon, January 4th of 1965. I read the account of your sermon for January 3rd as reported by the Washington Post. 
And I want to thank, take this opportunity to thank you for your support of my administration of the FBI. Your straightforward remarks concerning the Bureau's role in civil rights matters are a source of encouragement, and you may be assured my associates join me in expressing appreciation. So Hoover was work, excuse me, Michelle was working with the FBI and they were laundering material to try to fight King's efforts at civil rights. And finally, what Michelle would also do was he would be picketing Martin Luther King Jr. He had members of his church picket King whenever King was in town. One particular time, King was in Baltimore preparing for a boycott of the state of Alabama to help push through the voting rights bill shortly after the march in Selma. And Michelle brought several of his church members, over 100 according to the FBI file, to Baltimore with the permission and the protection of the FBI to protest Martin Luther King Jr holding up signs about communist, communist termites are inside the hotel, meaning Martin Luther King Jr. was there. When I revealed this to the public, um, a number of folks who were still part of Michelle's church um, reached out to me and, and some were shocked, some were dismayed about discovering the role, their minister's role in collaborating with the FBI and even one woman shared the story that she was a little girl and she was present at this protest and that she knew that she was protesting. Her parents told her to come and protest. And now as an adult, she had no idea. She realized that she was protesting Martin Luther King Jr. But at the time, she believed that it was the right thing to do. And according to the public, it was. Public opinion polls of the day, show that most Americans at the time did not agree with Martin Luther King Jr. This is a poll from 1965. And Washington Post did a poll asking Americans if they believed J. Edgar Hoover or Martin Luther King Jr. You see 50% of the public sided with Hoover, while 16% sided with King. And most of us think that King's popularity declined when he came out against the Vietnam War, but it came much before that. And as this Gallup poll from 1966 shows, Asking, asking Americans if they found King favorable or unfavorable, 66% of the people interviewed for the Gallup poll found King unfavorable. And this is not just the South. This is also the New York Times found in around this time that most Americans believe that King was moving too fast, that King was asking for things that African Americans didn't deserve. Again, this is not Birmingham. This is the New York Times. This is in the North. So this is not the, the story we know of King today. We know of King today with this monument there in Washington, DC. We know of President Obama being sworn in with his Bible. We know of the wonderful story of this monument. But America did not always believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was indeed an icon and a patriot. So it tells us today the question we have about where do we go from here? Where do we go knowing that Martin Luther King Jr. was opposed by his own country and now is championed by his own country? King wrote a book right before his passing in 1967, a wonderful book called Where Do We Go From Here? And King laid out what he believed was the right place for America to go. And in this book, he addressed once again the evil triplets. He talked about the concerns around racism. He talked about the concerns around poverty and war. He even offered up an economic policy of universal basic income. This is a movement that's gained traction in America today. There's a, an organization called Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. 
that goes around the country in places like Atlanta, and Birmingham, Alabama, piloting basic income programs to show, to get data to show how these programs help lift people out of poverty. And so I offer up to you in my close tonight is that we need to go back and make Martin Luther King Jr. our conversation partner. And then Martin Luther King Jr., not just reading about him, but actually reading Martin Luther King Jr. in his sermons. Let King be your conversation partner. He may not be someone you agree with on everything, but at least wrestle with Martin Luther King Jr. and his ideas and his writings. Wrestle with his understanding of the evil triplets and how they persist with us today. Wrestle with how he articulated the concerns about racism, poverty, and war. This is the only way we are going to promote and preserve King's legacy, by actually reading Martin Luther King and the words that he offered us and not just reading about him. I think King also offers, up, offers us something up about partnership. Too much in our society today, it feels to me that we are often all in our own corners and demonizing people who don't necessarily agree with us. This is not the way that King led. King actually sat down and talked to people he disagreed with. He actually went on national television and debated a segregationist newspaper editor out of Richmond, Virginia on national television on NBC. King sat down and talked to people who disagreed with him. And if we are actually going to make progress in this democracy and keep King's legacy alive, we have to follow the model, engage in conversation and partnership, even with folks who we may not agree with on everything. I think another thing King teaches us is dialogue. We have so much to learn from one another. We should not simply always engage in monologues, but actually engage in dialogues. Engage in conversation with one another to learn from one another. It's something that I did not realize at the time that I learned here at Princeton Seminary. Going to class, learning from individuals, hearing their perspective, hearing from different faith communities, hearing from different theological traditions. I came here as a Pentecostal holiness. And I left here, I'm not quite sure what I left here as. <laughs> but I come back to you as someone who understands the beauty of all of those traditions. The tradition my mother and father raised me with. The tradition here, the Presbyterian tradition, mainline Protestants, Episcopalians, AME, AME Zion, I learned so much. And the only way we're going to do that together is if we engage in dialogue across difference. And finally, I think what King teaches us is perseverance. We often think of King as a celebrity and he was very well known, but King endured a great deal as I shared with you tonight, but yet he decided to persevere. He decided that his commitment resisted even at times when it went against his pragmatic ideals. When King decided to come up against the Vietnam War, everyone around him told him not to say anything. He said that Lyndon Johnson's been good to us, the White House has been good to us, don't say a word. Don't bring the civil rights movement into the question around war and violence. King decided, he said, the famous quote he often said, I fought segregation too long to now segregate my conscience. And I think what King teaches us is that he persevered. He didn't stop talking to people who disagreed with him along the conversations of war. He didn't stop working with people, but he still had firm to his commitments. And I think that's what King leaves us with, his perseverance. 
But if we get this narrative that King was always an American icon, we'll lose the fact that he had to persevere. And we'll lose the fact that his ideas about the triple evils were very, very radical. And it may not make you the most popular person, but it'll certainly make you someone who's faithful. One of the things that's challenging about King is that, as I close, is that he's such an amazing preacher, an amazing voice, the ability to channel his Southern Baptist roots and the emotional aspects of the preaching, the call and response and the beauty, the timber of his voice. But all of us can't preach that way. But one of the things that I love about our Christian tradition is that our Christian tradition is that when we see in the text when God calls people, often they say that they're not worthy and they're not able. You think about Moses and Moses saying that he was slow of speech. He stammered, he stuttered. God told him, well, what's in your hand? Use the staff in your hand. When you think about David being called to go out and to fight Goliath and saying that he didn't have anything worth and he had these smooth stones at his hand. That's what I think the Christian tradition leaves us with today, is that when God calls you, whatever place it may be, God may ask you simply, what's in your hand? What's in your hand and what can you use? What do you have? What gifts do you have? What resources do you have at your disposal to use to help bring down these triple evils? I want to thank you for your time. I look forward to our questions.